Hi, and welcome to the Fund's Title Now webinar. I'm Melissa Murphy with the Fund, and I have the pleasure of hosting these webinars from time to time as topics of interest come up. And boy, there have been a lot of those lately. Now, a reminder, these webinars are not meant to be particularly instructional, but more informative. And so for that reason, we don't have PowerPoints for you to look at and PowerPoints for us to uh, send you a link to so that you can review. I really just want these to be more of a conversation that I have with one or two of my guests. And another reminder that we push the audio out to our podcast, which is conveniently also called Title Now. Super easy to get the podcast to subscribe to it. You go on whatever uh, platform you use to subscribe to your podcast and sign up. We would love to have you. But this is a great way for you to listen to the information again, if you would like to, but also to share it with colleagues uh, because it's super easy for them to sign up for the podcast. So our conversation today is about claims, claims made under title insurance policies, and not just your run-of-the-mill claims, like unpaid taxes or unpaid mortgages, but claim situations that fund members often find surprising. And by surprising, I mean they didn't understand or realize that the outcome was the way the policy works. So my guest today is George Perez, my colleague here at the fund. And George is the fund senior manager of claims, risk, risk analysis, and member compliance. So what better person to talk with us about claims and surprising claim situations than George? So George, welcome. Uh, good morning. Thank you. Actually, so George, what? Go ahead. Good afternoon. It's almost whichever it might be, whatever time zone our listener might happen to be in. So we're going to talk about four situations today that apparently come up often enough that we wanted to talk about them. So first, policy limits are paid under a policy. What does that mean? How are coverages between an owner's policy and a lender's policy when they were simultaneously issued, how are those handled when there's a claim? Third, what's, what is the company's duty to defend as spelled out under a policy? And then last, something that we encounter uh, a great deal out in the practice, code liens. How are they handled in the claims context? So let's start with policy limits and when policy limits are paid. Um, what is the general starting point when policy limits are paid, George? Well, Melissa, I, I think the usual starting point is there's a uh, kind of a mis I call it a misnomer out there that um, that the underwriter has an obligation to cure um, an otherwise legitimate defect. Uh, if, you, if you read the policy closely, policy only has two obligations. There's an obligation to um, an obligation to defend. An obligation or an obligation to identify, and many times both. Um, but uh, there is no obligation to cure. Um, 
there is an option to cure under paragraph seven uh, or condition seven. Um, and many times that's misconstrued as, as come some kind of uh, duty on our part. Um, yes, an option to do something does not necessarily translate into a duty to do that. I get that. So what are some examples of situations in which we have made the decision to pay policy limits and then people are surprised by what we don't do after that? Sure. I'll give you a couple of examples. So let's say somebody uh, submits the claim, dear fund, I bought some property, I have this policy, and I recently found out that it, there's a lack of a legal right of access. And you know, we do our due diligence on the claim side and we come to that same conclusion. Or uh, there might be an instance where there's a failure of title, not necessarily tied to fraud, but let's just say uh, a significant break in the chain, uh, uh, or uh, some other thing that contributes to a um, to a break. Uh, it, yes, those are uh, covered matters, um, and somebody like myself can can sit and say, "Well, I'm at a crossroads. What do I do? Do I uh, undertake some action to address the problem, or do I tender policy limits?" and and from time to time, we'll make that decision to tender policy limits. Uh, and, and basically, uh, that's all we need to do. It's, it's, it's effectively a, uh, we pay and we're done. Um. <laughs> well, that's an interesting way to put it. We pay and we're done. I like it. But it sounds a little harsh. Um, so let's give a little bit more color to the reason why we might make that decision. Um, the first example that you gave was lack of access. And certainly when you are considering the cost associated with fixing that covered matter, getting access to a particular piece of property, which if I'm remembering my law school classes correctly, you could have um, a prescriptive easement, you could have a statutory way of necessity. And it's if you're weighing the cost of undertaking that effort versus the face amount of the policy, it sounds like making the decision to pay policy limits must come up when you're dealing with fairly low transactional amounts. Is that your experience? Absolutely. I think that um, a good 99 plus percent of the time when we're uh, making this decision to basically pay the policy limits is usually on smaller policy amounts where we're making a conclusion that there is going to be an extraordinary amount of cost to cure, and um, and that when you when you weigh that cost to cure versus our policy exposure, it it makes more sense to uh, basically tender the policy amount. 
I would suspect that that often upsets the insured and or the member that perhaps issued the policy. Hence, we are including it in this webinar today because that is a surprise to them that we have the option to pay policy limits if the cost of care is um, in, greatly in excess of that. You did mention fraudulent deeds. Um, unfortunately, we've had quite a few of those lately where we have an insured that unfortunately fell victim along with the fund member to a fraudulent scheme. And it is proven up that in fact, the deed vesting title in our insured was fraudulent. And um, how, how are those policy limits generally handled? Well, you know, um... Obviously, those policies could be any, you know, from very nominal amounts to even significant amounts. But the, uh, you know, it is it is the, it is the crime du jour for 2022 and 2023 uh, when it comes to real property. Uh, you know, we we put a lot of energy and effort into determining what you know whether the allegations of a of a, a fraudulent deed are, are are accurate. And unfortunately, most of the time, our conclusions are you know they are indeed that way. In other words, yes, this use a product of forgery of a complete failure of title. Um, and we and we uh, and we end up tendering policy limits. I think what the what what usually happens, the 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 difficulties that arise after that is you know many times the insurance are like, well, well what are you gonna do now? Right? Okay, thank you very much for paying me. Um, but what what are you gonna do to uh, you know, to, uh, to, to clear up this, uh, you know, are you going to do anything to clear up the title uh, issue for the previous owner? And and the way the policy is written, we, once again, we have no obligation to do that. We might make suggestions that, you know, they should, you know, quote, return title back to the previous owner, maybe by something as simple as a quick claim deed, or um, it's not something that we're charged with the task of undertaking uh, to do on behalf of our insured owners. Well, it, our insured would not care so much about clearing the title, but the true owner of the property, uh, because of some involvement with the fund member, who knows, might, might have the expectation that because we insured a fraudulent deed, that we then have the obligation to the true owner to clear up the title. But what I'm hearing you say is, no, that's not the case. And... And another situation uh, in, in which the insured may be upset that we have the option to just pay policy limits is when they got a really good deal on that lot and uh, were duped into buying the property in a big hurry for a really good price, but all we're going to do is give them their money back, right? Yeah, it's almost always a really good deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which often ends up with an up, um, an insured that's upset and uh, often a fund member that's surprised. Oh. So let's move on to the next area of uh, interesting situations. And that's 
uh, owners and lenders policies that have been simultaneously issued uh, in connection with the same transaction. So what types of issues come up there? Oh, okay. So, you know, obviously we're all familiar with the whole simultaneous issue owner and loan policies. Um, usually um, where this comes up is where we have a uh, most common is where we have a complete failure of title. So for instance, I we were just talking about forged deeds. So you can have complete failures of title, obviously with forged deeds for a host of other reasons. But um, when we have, uh, when, if, there, if there's no way to fix anything, and we're now it's a matter of paying damages, we're kind of at a uh, at an odd crossroads. Uh, I'll use the example if we have a $100,000 owner's policy and an $80,000 simultaneous loan policy, um, and it's now time to pay damages, there have been times where our uh, the, the insured would say, okay, my understanding is you're going to pay the $80,000 to the lender and the $100,000 to the owner. And the answer to that is, is no. <laughs> um, uh, mainly because uh, there, there's a condition 11, right? Um, I mean, it's way down there, condition 11, and uh, very uh, not read very often, uh, which stands for the premise that if when we have these simultaneous issued policies, well, we pay the lender first, and uh, to the extent that we pay the lender first, the policy says that that payment is deemed, right? Fancy legal word for, you know, let's make believe, I always say, you know, is deemed a payment to the owner. So what does that mean in real life? That means that, you know, we pay $80,000 to the lender, that, uh, that $80,000 is shaved off the $100,000 that we would pay to the owner. So ultimately, the owner only gets $20,000. But their obligation to the lender has been satisfied and the loan has been paid off. Right? Correct. Right. So I guess there is some equity to that. There is some sense behind that situation. Um, but what about situations where it's not a complete failure of title, but uh, somehow um, an easement got missed and is not listed as an exception in either the lender's policy or the owner's policy? So that's not a complete failure of title. So how are those viewed and, and generally dealt with? All right, well, that's a good question. Um, so in a hyper-technical world, this the we could use the exact same process. So let's just say that we're talking about an easement and a diminution in value. You know, we have a $100,000 owner, $80,000 lender, $10,000 diminution in value because of an easement. Um, could we, based on condition 11, pay the lender the, um, the uh, uh, $10,000 and we're done? Yes, absolutely, we could do that. Um, or could we just pay the owner the $10,000? Um, we could do that as well. The, 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 the driving force in that decision is ultimately... Uh, how much equity is there left in this property, even subject to the defect? So in this case, if we had a $100,000 property 
is diminished by $10,000 because of the easement, it's still worth $90,000, which means it's way more than enough equity to cover that $80,000 loan amount. So in that case, we can make that decision to pay the uh, the owner as opposed to paying the lender. So we have the choice. We have the ability to make that decision. Yes? Correct. Absolutely. And is... Is the language addressing that issue and that option on behalf of the underwriter in both the lender's policy and the owner's policy? It is. is there, it is? Okay. It is, yes. Okay. I find um, that to be pretty interesting, but not as interesting as a complete failure of title where you pay the lender and then the owner just has whatever the remaining amount of coverage is for any future additional defects that might crop up. Oof, let's not go there. So the third area we want to chat about is the duty to defend. So when is the duty to defend an insured triggered under the policy, or when is it, maybe it's better to deal with this, is when is the duty to defend not applicable at all? Um, Well, you heard me say at the beginning of the conversation that there's only two obligations really under a policy, a duty to defend and a duty to indemnify. Uh, The duty to defend arises under condition 5A. Um, Now, if one were to read the, Condition 5A closely, it, it basically stands, uh, it basically has language that says that, that will defend, uh, shall, shall provide a defense of an insured in litigation in which any third party asserts a claim, here it comes, covered by this policy, uh, that is adversely insured. So the, the, the pivotal language there is covered by the policy. So just because it's a lawsuit doesn't necessarily mean that there's a duty to defend. It has to be something that is covered. Right. I mean, so so a silly but obvious example is if I'm the insured and my neighbor sues me for nuisance because I'm doing something on my property that annoys the heck out of them, that is not a covered matter. So you would have no duty to defend me. Um, but what what are the types of things where my actual ownership or title to my property is threatened or challenged, but you don't have the duty to defend? What are the typical situations that come up where people are surprised that you have no duty to defend? Well, I would say that based on my years of experience, the single most common surprise that I've seen is uh, when our insured transaction itself is being challenged as a fraudulent transfer. Ah. And um, in other words, there's a creditor who is uh, you know, taking action against the property and basically saying that our grantor did something to stick it to the creditor. And uh, it was basically uh, trying to, uh, uh, dis- you know, dissipate assets or what have you. Um, and the creditor is using the uh, the fraudulent, fraudulent transfers act uh, to basically uh, attempt to 
for lack of a better word, unwind our insured transaction. And, uh, you know, to, so that way it, the court would still look at it as still being title still being the name of the grantor slash debtor uh, for collection purposes. So that is not a covered matter under the policy, and therefore we have no duty to defend the insured in that situation. Uh, that's correct. There's, a, there's an exclusion. So, the, the, you know, there's a section of the laundry list of exclusions and both the owners and the loan policy. And uh, under the owner's policy, exclusion 4A um, talks about uh, that there is, uh, excludes, uh, let's see, will not pay loss or expenses by reason of operation of bankruptcy, state insolvency, or similar creditors' rights laws that the transaction vesting title issuance schedule A, in other words, our insured transaction, is a fraudulent conveyance or fraudulent transfer. Um, so that one is makes everybody's like steam come out of people's ears and heads spin on their on their spine. <laughs> Seeing everybody listening claims is a lot more interesting than you may have thought. It's really quite dramatic. So this last area that we want to talk about are code liens. And there's, you know, there's all this confusion about, and maybe I should have, have called this category code violations, not even gone so far as to call them liens. So what kinds of situations do you deal with in the claims context that have to do with um, alleged violations of municipal or county codes? Um, well, the, the usual way it comes up is we have an insured is doing what I call some at-home title examination or or they're doing they're trying to do something with the property, they're trying to get a permit to improve or whatever have you. And um Something comes up, and that something that comes up is uh, you know, an alleged code lien in favor of some county or municipality um, for a violation of, you know, insert whatever ordinance that you can think of. And um, the, 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 the claim comes in, the, hey, you know, dear fund, I've, I've, just, you know, I've been doing, I was doing this, I've discovered this lien. Uh, help me, what are you going to do about it? And some people are demanding and say, thou shalt do something about this. And so now I'm claims I'm in a crossroads as to what I'm going to do. So what is the, what's the analysis that you undertake to, to determine whether or not there's coverage under their policy? Uh, well, for a claims guy like myself, the big the uh, there, there's two things. One is is it a real is it does it meet the the requirements for purposes of becoming a lien? So Chapter 162 of the Florida Statutes lays out the the minutia of, of what I uh, what a lien is supposed to contain. But once I get beyond that, the next question I have is well, is it in the um, is it in the public records? Uh, because if it's not in the public records, uh, there's there's no um, there is no oblig you know there is no there, there's not a covered uh, covered matter. Um, mainly because if you look at cover risk five, which is the uh, the, the cover risk that talks about 
among other things, code lanes, it basically has that triggering language that says it has to be in the public records in order for it to qualify as a covered matter. So doesn't that kind of beg the question of what's the definition of public records? Because a city would certainly say that their code violation records are open to the public. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's where sometimes the debate is with some of our insureds. And our our response is we point them to a few things. We say there is a definition uh, for public records. Right? It's in, in in paragraph one, which is the uh, includes the of the conditions. There's a laundry list of definitions in there, and uh, among other things, it defines public records as. Um, it says records established under state statutes for the purpose of imparting constructive notice of matters relating to real property for pur to purchases for value and without knowledge. So, um, what does that mean in real life? That means that uh, that it is the records maintained by the clerk of the court of the appropriate county. Um, and in fact, that there is a there was a, a case, I believe it was called Han Realty. I think his first American was involved. It's the 11th Circuit uh, federal case where it actually, the dispute was, what is a public record? Is it, does it include the local city of whatever, you know, their code office? And, their, and they said, no, absolutely not. The policy is clear and unambiguous that it effectively means clerk records and nothing else. And yes, they are public. Those offices are indeed open to the public and their records are indeed public, but it's not public records and purposes of the policy. Well, that's very interesting because that distinction between official records and public records is something that comes up in our world in many different contexts. And it's, and it's interesting that uh, it comes up in the context of claims also. So do... Do these types of discussions that, that are focused on a code violation, do they come up pretty often in your world? Quite frequently. <laughs> yeah. So generally speaking, you know, we've talked about these four different areas of claims. Generally speaking, when you encounter one of these situations and, and you know that it's possible that the news you deliver to the fund member who's representing the insured, the fund member may have issued the policy. I mean, they're all different types of scenarios, but regardless, uh, you know that the news you're going to deliver is going to be surprising. Do you take any sort of <laughs> proactive measures or anticipate that surprise in the conversations that you have with insureds or fund members that are involved in a claim? Yes. Um, you know, the, I call it the preemptive strike or trying to bring it in for a soft landing. Um, you know, many times it's quite a jolt to get a letter uh, from us that basically says, hey, this is not a cover, you know, this claim is being denied for, you know, whatever uh, reason. And we cite the chapter and verse. Um, Many times when, when we, we know it's going to be uh, that much of a jolt, we will reach out uh, to the claimant or the representative to kind of um, 
have a you know as professional and as cordial a discussion <laughs> as possible uh and kind of explain to them you know that this decision is coming and, and that gets us that i'd say a good 80 to 90 percent of the time that buys us a lot of goodwill and a lot and a high level of acceptance but of course there are those, those some instances where um you know the insureds won't you know won't be happy well hopefully this webinar has uh helped bring uh, a couple of hundred people along the knowledge spectrum of what is covered and what's not covered and and how claims works and what options we have. So um, for that reason, I hope we've been successful today, George, so that maybe the next time a situation like this comes up and you call the insured or their representative, they'll say, oh yeah, I understand. I get it. <laughs> that would be that would mean we were successful today. So thanks, George, for your time and your expertise, because you certainly know more about claims than anyone else I know. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Hope this has been informative, if perhaps not instructional, but at least informative about the way a lot of claim situations are typically handled. And let me remind you again, we'll push this out on the podcast so that uh, you can listen to it or share the information with colleagues. But as always, thank you for your support of the fund.